Well, thank you, guys. Uh, powerful. Amen. I hope that's where you are, hiding in the rock, hiding in Christ, finding your identity in Jesus. If not, then you're searching for where, who you are and where your identity can be found. And this world is giving all kinds of options. And, um, and none of them are any good. And so we need to learn to know who we are in Christ. And uh, if we don't have a relationship with Christ, then we need to, we need to get one. Right? Through Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. Well, let me pray, and then we're going to get into God's Word together. <clears throat> Our Father, thank you that we can sing to you, sing about you, sing about our relationship with you as a reminder to each other, but ultimately, Lord, that you might be pleased as you hear what we offer from our hearts and our lips, praise to you, God, because of who you are because of what you've done for us, because of what you are doing in and for and through us, because of what you've promised to do in the future for us. Well, we live in the, in the reality that we are in Christ. The hope we have that gets us up every day to face whatever that day holds. And so <clears throat> we want to thank you. We ask that now you would take your word and speak the truth that we need to hear to us. We ask that your Holy Spirit will be the, the one who teaches us and guides us into all the truth. That whatever you want us to do, to take away and to apply, you will make that very clear. And so thank you for hearing our prayer and answering in accord with your will. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, our expedition has taken us through, I believe, 12 books now. <clears throat> and uh, we started in Genesis with uh, those four key events in the first 11 chapters and then the four key individuals. As you follow the book of Genesis, you follow this progression. And then we come to, to Exodus, where Exodus, where we find that the nation has been in, in Egypt and they've been in captivity in Egypt. They've grown from, four, uh, from seven, uh, 19, yeah, 70 people to now over 2 million over 400 years, 430 years, and they've been in bondage in Egypt. So in Exodus, we see God redeeming them, delivering them from bondage through Moses, the ten plagues, and through the Red Sea into the wilderness where God gave them revelation. He instructed them directions and how to live and how to worship him. Then we come to the book of Leviticus. Leviticus is, is not really historical because it only covers a, a whole month, but it's instructional. And we see the sacrifices and feasts. 
We see God's instructions on how to live a holy life before God as his people in a covenant relationship with him. And then you come to the book of um, Numbers, the wilderness wanderings, where the old generation that was in Egypt came out of Egypt. They saw firsthand the work of God redeeming them, but they didn't trust him when he told them to go into the promised land. They thought, there's, there's giants in the land. They're, we're never going to go in the fortified cities. And so because of their lack of trust, God had them wander for 40 years till they died off. A new generation was raised up and ready to enter the promised land. And then we come to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, again, only covers a month period of time. It's, it's God's instructions to the new generation. It's a, it's, uh, a reiteration of the law. Where we see Moses preaching three sermons. First of all, what God has done for Israel, reminding them of what God has done, the uh, recurring um, faithfulness of God over, over their, their, uh, their, their history. And then we see, secondly, uh, what God expects of them. He's, he's reminding them of the, of the law, and he's reestablishing that in their lives. And then thirdly, what God will do. And he's reestablishing covenant with his new generation as they prepare to enter the promised land. Then Moses dies and Joshua becomes a leader. And so Joshua is a book about conquest. Divide and conquer and then divide and settle. And Joshua hands out to all of the tribes uh, their inheritance. And at the end of the book, before he passes away, uh, he calls for a commitment. He says... Choose you this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And then Joshua dies. And that generation served the Lord. But then the next generation, as we move into the book of Judges, that next generation, it says, did not know God nor the things which God had done. And so they rebelled against God and began to worship the idols of the people in the land because rather than doing what Joshua told them to do, to go into their inheritance and, and cast out the rest of the people there, they didn't do it. And therefore those people stayed and the idols of the land began to take over and they began to worship those idols. And so we see in the book of Judges these sin cycles where they rebelled against God by worshiping idols. God brought retribution uh, through other nations, bringing them into captivity. They cried out to God in repentance God raised up a rescuer called a judge, and then there was a period of rest. So that judge died, and then went right back into it. And this happened from one tribe to the next, and it just kept going. And so they were in these sin cycles. Very dark time in Israel's history. But there was a bright spot in that time, and it was Ruth, a Moabite widow. Uh, her husband came from Israel down to Moab to, to escape the famine, and then he died, uh, she married him then, he died, and then she forsook her people and her gods and went back with her mother-in-law, who was also a widow, back to Israel and embraced the people of God, and God himself as her God. And God brought Boaz into her life, a kinsman, who redeemed her, redeemed the, the inheritance that her family, uh, her father, her husband's family had, and, uh, and they had a son, and that son became the grandfather of, of a man named David, who became somewhat of an important figure in Israel's history. And it's a beautiful story uh, of redemption. It's a picture of our redemption and God's love for us. 
And then we move from there into the times uh, of the monarchy, into 1 Samuel, where God raised up a young man named Samuel, who was the first prophet in Israel. And he anointed Saul, king, the first king in Israel, because the people wanted a king like all the other nations. And so God said, go ahead. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me as their king. And so he gives them uh, what they asked for. But Saul didn't obey God, and so God rejected him from being king and anointed David as the king. But David didn't become king right away. In fact, the, the last part of 1 Samuel, we see Saul trying to kill David because he knew David was going to be the next king. At the end of Sam, 1 Samuel, Saul dies. And then we come to 2 Samuel, which is David's reign as king. He becomes king, and then the whole book of 2 Samuel is about his reign. And unfortunately, we see at the first part, the triumphs of David. Things are going well. God makes this covenant with David and says, there will be someone from your line on this throne. And he establishes that covenant, and it would be uh, fulfilled by Jesus. And it would be a forever kingdom eventually. But then we have the transgression of David. David sinned. David committed adultery and then murder, and, and uh, chapter 11 is a dark chapter in, that, in David's history. But he repents because the Nathan, Nathan the prophet comes to him. But from there on, we see the, the troubles of David because sin has consequences. We are forgiven, but there are consequences that linger in this life, and his family was a wreck from that point on. There was incest, there was rape, there was uh, usurping the kingdom, there was all kinds of things, murdering each other, and it was, it was horrible. These are the consequences of sin. Well, when we come to 1 Kings, at the beginning of 1 Kings, David passes our leadership to Solomon and he dies. Solomon is king. The United Kingdom continues. Until Solomon, the first 11 chapters, until Solomon's 40 years of reign are over. And then the kingdom was divided. And the 10 tribes went north and said, we're going to have our own kingdom. And they became the kingdom of Israel. And the southern kingdom was Judah and Benjamin. And they were the southern kingdom of Judah. The line of David continued in the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom, they got their own king from a different family. And that continued um, the, the, the different families because... None of those kings were any good. They never followed God. And so there was, <laughs> there was murder and there was all kinds of things going on there. And then we come to 2 Kings, which actually just continues the, 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 the progression of the divided kingdom until we get to chapter 17, when the northern kingdom <clears throat> uh, was taken captive by the Assyrians. The Assyrians took them. And then from that point on, you have the surviving kingdom of Judah from chapter 18 to chapter 25. And then the, the, the history then is just following the southern kingdom until they get to the point where God brings them into captivity to Babylonia. And that's the history up to this point. So now we come to the books of Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles. I'm going to cover both books today. And, uh, and that's because the history is the same. Historical context is the same as 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings. 1 Chronicles covers the same period of time as 2 Samuel, David's reign. And, and 2 Chronicles covers 1 and 2 Kings, the history. But it's written from a different perspective. Let me share with you a couple, uh, a couple thoughts about that, just to kind of give you <clears throat> a little background on this before we jump into the text. And this comes from David Wilkerson and Kenneth Barrow's book, Talk Through the Bible, he says, regarding authorship, 
Although the text does not identify the author, several facts seem to support the tradition of the Jewish Talmud that Ezra, the priest, was the author. The content points to a priestly authorship because of the emphasis on the temple, the priesthood, and the theocratic line of David in the southern kingdom of Judah. Chronicles is quite similar in style to the book of Ezra, and both share a priestly perspective, genealogies, temple worship, ministry of the priesthood, and obedience to the law of God. In addition, the closing verses of 2 Chronicles are repeated with minor changes as the opening of verses of Ezra. Thus, Chronicles and Ezra may have been one consecutive history in much the same way as Luke and Acts in the New Testament. And then they go on to say regarding the theme and purpose of the books of Chronicles, Chronicles was written to provide a spiritual perspective on the historical events from the time of David to Cyrus' decree in 538 B.C. It traces Israel's lineage back to the dawn of the human race and forward to the end of the Babylonian captivity to reveal God's faithfulness and continuing purpose for his people. Because it was written to the returning remnant, Chronicles has a more positive thrust than Samuel or Kings. It does not deny failures, but concentrates on the messianic line, the temple, and the spiritual reforms. The readers needed encouragement in rebuilding their heritage. Chronicles teaches that Yahweh is still with them. He brought them back and enabled them to rebuild the temple. All is not lost. Though the glory has departed, they are under the control, and they are under the control of Gentile powers, God still has a future for them. The throne of David has gone, but the line of David still stands. Chronicles emphasizes the role of the law, the priesthood, and the temple. Although Solomon's temple was no longer there, the second temple could be regarded as the remnants linked to the first. This book also taught the past was pregnant with lessons for their present. Apostasy, idolatry, intermarriage with Gentiles, and a lack of unity were the reasons for their recent ruin. It is significant that after the exile, Israel never again worshipped foreign idols. So they're in captivity. Ezra's writing to them, reminding them of their history, but doing so from a certain perspective so that they understand the lessons that they need to learn from their own history so they don't repeat it. So that when they go back into the land, they can live out the way God intended them to live. And so we want to look at a particular king and what was written about him, this king named Asa, which is in 2 Chronicles chapters 14 through 16. If you'll turn there with me. 2 Chronicles chapters 14 through 16. Now, just to give you a, and this is a good example of the difference between the historical accounts in Kings uh, Samuel and Kings, and those in Chronicles. This incident about the reign of King Asa in 1 Kings 15 only covers less than 20 verses. In Chronicles, it covers three chapters. And I know some of you are saying, why can't we look at it in Kings? Because it's a whole sh lot shorter, and this will be a shorter sermon. <laughs> you know me well enough to know it won't be a shorter sermon. Um, but the reason is because there's, there are there are details in the Chronicles account that are not found in the historical account in Kings. 
And again, there's a purpose. Ezra wrote to teach them lessons. And so we're going to, for our, for our outline, we're going to, to look at the, the early years of King Asa and the later years of King Asa and then the lessons we learned from the life of Asa. We're going to contrast. This is what Ezra's doing. He's contrasting certain things from Ezra's early life to Ezra's later life as king. Did I say Ezra? Asa's life. And, uh, and he is helping them see what went on there and, and, and how the failure, how, how what Asa did at the beginning was good and what he did later was a failure and showing the contrast and then how God wants to speak into their lives. So let's look at the early years of Asa. Well, let me go ahead and read Second uh, Chronicles. They're shorter, shorter chapters. I'm going to read all three chapters because um, we have to know the story. Chapter 14. So Abijah, which was Asa's father, slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David, and his son Asa became king in his place. The lamb was undisturbed for ten years during his days. He's a, he, um, let me just pause here. He's a king in the southern kingdom. Again, because this is a, uh, all about the southern kingdom. Asa did good and right in the sight of the Lord his God. For he removed the foreign altars and high places and tore down the sacred pillars and cut down the asherim and commanded Judah to seek the Lord God of their fathers to observe the law and the commandments. He also removed the high places and the incense altars from all the cities of Judah. And the kingdom was undisturbed under him. He built fortified cities in Judah since the land was undisturbed and there was no war at time, uh, no one at war with him. Uh, those years, because the Lord had given him rest. For he said to Judah, let us build these cities and surround them with walls and towers and gates and bars. The land is still ours because we've sought the Lord our God. We've sought him and he has given us rest on every side. So they built and they prospered. And Asa had an army of 300,000 from Judah and bearing large shields and spears and 280,000 from Benjamin bearing shields and wielding bows, all of them valiant warriors. Verse 9, now Zerah the Ethiopian came up out against them with an army of a million, uh, 300 chariots, and he came to Merisha. And so Asa went out to meet him, and they drew up in battle formation the valley of Zephatha yeah, at Merisha. Then Asa called the Lord, on the Lord his God and said, Lord, there is no one besides thee to help in battle between the powerful and those who have no strength. So help us, O Lord our God, for we trust in thee. And in thy name have come against this multitude, O Lord. Thou art our God. Let no man prevail against thee. So the Lord routed the Ethiopians before Asa before, and before Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. And Asa and the people were with him, pursued them as far as Gerar, and so many Ethiopians fell that they could not recover, for they were shattered before the Lord and before his army. And they carried away very much plunder. And they destroyed all the cities around Gerar, for the dread of the Lord had fallen on them, and they despoiled all the cities, for there was much plunder in them. They also struck down those who owned livestock, and they carried away large numbers of sheep and camels. Then they returned to Jerusalem. And the Spirit of God came on Azariah, the son of Oded, and he went out to meet Asa and said to him, Listen to me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin, the Lord is with you when you are with him. And if you seek him, he'll let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. For 
many days, and he's, he's reminding them of the history now. He says, for many days Israel was about the, without the true God and without the teaching priest and without law. But in their distress, they turned to the Lord their God of Israel, and they sought him and, let him, and he let them find him. In those times, there was no peace to him who went out and to him who came in. For many disturbances afflicted all the inhabitants of the lands. And the nation was crushed by nation, city by city, for God troubled them with every kind of distress. But you, be strong and do not lose courage, for there is reward for your work. Asa heard these words and the prophecy which Ezariah, the son of Oded, this prophet, spoke. And he took courage and removed the abominable idols from all the land of Judah and Benjamin, from all the cities which they had captured in the hill country of Ephraim. And he restored the altar of the Lord, which is in front of the porch of the Lord. And he gathered all Benjamin, all Judah and Benjamin, and those from Ephraim, Manasseh and Simeon, who resided with them, for many defected to him from Israel, when they saw that the Lord, his God, was with him. So they assembled at Jerusalem in the third month, the 15th year of Asa's reign. And they sacrificed to the Lord that day 700 oxen, 7,000 sheep from the spoil they had brought. And they entered into the covenant to seek the Lord God of their fathers with all of their heart and soul. And whoever would not seek the Lord God of Israel would be put to death, whether small or great, man or woman. Moreover, they made an oath to the Lord with a loud voice, with shouting with trumpets and horns. And all Judah rejoiced concerning the oath, for they had sworn with their whole heart and had sought him earnestly, and he let them find him. So the Lord gave him rest on every side. He also removed Maacah, the mother of King Asa, from the position of queen mother because she had made a horrid image of Asherah. And Asa cut down her horrid image, crushed it, burned it at the brook Kidron. But the high places were not removed from Israel. Nonetheless, Asa's heart was blameless all his days, and he brought into the house of God the dedicated things of his father and his own dedicated things, silver and gold and utensils, and there was no more war until the 35th year of Asa's reign. We'll stop for a moment there. These are the early years. The early years of Asa's reign. There are two significant events. One, the attack by the enemy. Zerah, the Ethiopian, came with a million soldiers, 300 chariots against Asa, against Judah. They were much more powerful. In fact, we're told there were 300,000 soldiers in Judah, 280,000 in, in Benjamin, which is just over half of what the Ethiopians had. But there are some who believe that the Hebrew word that's, that's translated thousands in verse 8 is actually a word which means specially trained men. You could talk to Paul about that Hebrew word if you want. Uh, afterwards. Um, but it's possible that there was only 300 specially trained men in Judah and only 280 specially trained men in Benjamin. Or even if there were 300,000, 280, that's still only 580,000 compared to a million. And these million in Ethiopia, they had chariots and they were well trained men. They, were, they had the, the equipment that Israel Judah didn't have. They were far outmanned and outpowered in this battle. So what does Asa do? Verse 11. He calls out to God. And he says, Lord, there's no one besides you to help in a battle between one so powerful and a people who have no strength. And so we trust you, Lord, 
Will you help us? In your name we've come against this multitude. Do not let man prevail against you. And so what does God do in answer to Asa's prayer? He gives them a decisive victory. Ethiopians were so devastated, they, they couldn't recover, it says. And there was much plunder, much spoil that they got from that. Then we come to chapter 15, and we see the God's word through the prophet who comes and says to them in chapter 15, verse 1 and 2, Listen to me, Asa. And all Judah and Benjamin, the Lord is with you when you are with him. And if you seek him, he'll let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. In other words, it's in, the ball's in your court, if you will. He says to them, God has made himself available to you. If you will seek him, if you will be with him. So Asa responds favorably, yes. He listens to what he says. Verse 8, he heard and he heeded the words of the prophet. And he, again, continued with his reforms, destroying the idols that were in the land and all of that and rebuilding up good things in the temple, all of those things. A sacrifice to the Lord. All of these things, in fact... <laughs> Not only removed the idols and reestablished covenant with God, but he removed his own mom from being queen mother. That didn't go over real well at the family reunion, I'm sure. Right? I mean, he was all in with God. God said, this is not right. And he said, it doesn't matter if she's my mom or not. We're going to take care of this. This is King Asa. He was a good king. He did what was right and good in the sight of God in the early years. Well, then we come to the later years, chapter 16. In the 36th year of Asa's reign, Baasha, <clears throat> king of Israel, came up against Judah and fortified Ramah in order to prevent anyone from going in or going out, or coming in to Asa, king of Judah. And Asa brought out <clears throat> silver and gold from the treasures of the house of the Lord and kings and his own house, and sent them to Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, who lived in Damascus, saying, Let there be a treaty between you and me, as between my father and your father. Behold, I sent you silver and gold. Go break your treaty with Baasha, king of Israel, so that he will withdraw from me. So Ben-Hadad, listen to king Asa, sent the commanders of his armies against the cities of Israel, and they conquered Ejon, Dan, Abel, Man, and all the store cities of Naphtali. And it came about when Baasha heard of it, and he ceased fortifying Ramah and stopped his work. And King Asa brought all Judah, and they carried away the stones of Ramah and its timber which, with which Baasha had been building. And with them he fortified Geba and Mizpah. And at that time, Hananiah the seer, another word for prophet, came to Asa, Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, Because you have relied on the king of Aram, and have not relied on the Lord your God, therefore the army of the king of Aram has escaped out of your hand. Were not the Ethiopians and the Lubin an immense army with very many chariots and horsemen, yet because you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand? 
For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, and he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. And then he says, you have acted foolishly in this. Indeed, from now on, you will surely have war. And Asa was angry with the seer and put him in prison. He was enraged at him for this, and Asa oppressed some of the people at the same time. And now the acts of Asa from the first to the last, behold, they're written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. In the 39th year of the reign of Asa, he became diseased in his feet. His disease was very severe, yet in his disease he did not seek the Lord but the physicians. And so Asa slept with his fathers, having died in the 41st year of his reign, after they buried him in his own tomb, which he had cut for himself in the city of David, and they laid him in the resting place, which he had filled with spices of various kinds, rendered by the perfumer's art, and they made a very great fire for him. So in the later years, we see, again, similar events. We have the attack of the enemy. This time it was a different enemy. This time it wasn't that immense of an enemy. It was Israel. Very similar in size, probably. And rather than Asa responding the same way by calling out the Lord and saying, God, this is your fight. Uh, we need help. He probably figures, well, I, I can handle this. I, I, I learned some things. You know, I'm older now. I've, I've, I've matured. And now I've got some understanding of how these things work. And, you know, if I just take some of the silver and gold that is dedicated to God and I, I take all that and I give it to the king of Aram, he can help me out. So he can begin fighting against Israel. And that will distract uh, uh, Baasha. And then we can go in and we can take Rama, and that's what he did. Rama was a border city between the north and the south, and so that he was keeping people from moving back and forth. So Asa thought, well, okay, I'll just get him out of there, and then so he takes all the stuff that, that the king of Israel was using to fortify, and he fortified his own cities on his border. And he thought he was all that, temporarily, till the prophet came. And we see God's word through the prophet. And the prophet says, because you rely on the king of Aram and not on me, you will continue to have wars. What happened when he relied on the Lord? There was peace in the land. They enjoyed great peace. But as soon as he relied on himself, God says, you will have continual wars, turmoil, disruption. And then he gives them this statement that is just so important. He says, for the, Lord, for the eyes of the Lord move to and fro, fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. And he says, you have acted foolishly in what you have done. So how does Asa respond to this? And he said, okay, yeah, you're right, God. I'm sorry, I, I, I did that. I, I'm wrong. No. He said to the prophet, who are you to tell me? I'm the king. <laughs> Roman prison. He was enraged. And he took it out on some of the other people. And then later when he got a disease in his feet, instead of calling out to God for help, he went to the pagan physicians. And again, this isn't telling us it's wrong to go to doctors. The, the point he's making is he didn't trust the Lord. He didn't go to God, but went to pagans who probably were more like witch doctors. 
he died. So you got this <clears throat> contrast. Asa's early years, it was intact. He trusted the Lord. God gave him victory and gave him rest. The prophet came and reaffirmed <clears throat> what it was like to follow God. If you're with him, he'll be with you. If you seek him, he'll let you find him. But <clears throat> if you forsake him, he'll forsake you. And then we see that's exactly what happened. When, when the second attack came later in the years, and he didn't respond that way, he tried to take matters in his own hands, and God dealt with him through the word of the prophet. So what are the lessons? <clears throat> there are four. Four lessons we learn <clears throat> from the life of Asa. These are lessons that Ezra, I believe, wanted the, the, the Israelites, uh, the Jews, to, to, to learn as they were heading back from captivity in Babylonia back into Israel, back into the land to, to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem and all of this. First lesson, no problem is too big for the Lord. No problem is too big for the Lord. In fact, this prayer that, that Asa prays in verse 11 of chapter 14 is a great prayer to pray when you are facing something that seems insurmountable. When you're facing a problem, trouble, that you can do nothing about, the, the, the issue is so big that you don't even know where to begin to try and solve this. Three things from this prayer. <clears throat> Number one, he says, there's no one besides thee, O God. There is a focused attention upon the greatness of God, upon who God is, how God is capable. Uh, and so he gives his attention to that reality, the focus on the greatness of God. And this is what we need to do when we feel overwhelmed by problems, when we feel, uh, when the, maybe the fear of a situation begins to, uh, paralyze us from knowing how to act. We need to turn our attention away from the great problem to the even greater God that we serve. Second thing he does is he acknowledges his trust in the Lord. Oh Lord our God, we trust in thee. This isn't just words. This is the tr true reality of his heart. We're trusting in you, Lord. <clears throat> you are the only one who is able to help us between the powerful and those who have no strength. And so we trust in you. And so we need to acknowledge our trust. We need to reestablish trust in the Lord. We need to turn <clears throat> our trust over to God. And then thirdly, he acknowledges the battle is the Lord's. In your name we've come against this multitude. Thou art our God, let not man prevail against us, no, against thee. This is your battle, Lord, and we're going to leave it in your hands. This is how we deal with these kinds of issues. We stop looking at the problem and start looking at the one who has the solution and his greatness and his glory, and, and then we trust him and we leave it at his, at his feet and we know he's got this. You show me what part I need to play in this, and I will, but I know this is your battle, and you're going you're gonna to do your thing. No problem is too big for the Lord. And so my question for you is, what are you overwhelmed with right now? 
What is it that is you're dealing with, that you're facing that seems insurmountable, that seems too big, that is causing fear and paral paralyzation in you? And what would it look like to take it to the Lord, to trust the Lord with it? That may seem scary. Because sometimes we think, as long as I, I'm doing something, I feel like I, you know. But sometimes God says, there's nothing you need to do. You just, you just talk to me about it. You entrust it to me, and I got this. And I'll show you. If there's something you need to do, I'll, I'll guide you in that. But leave it with me. Second lesson. The Lord is with you when you are with him. That's the message of the prophet. In the early years. The Lord is with you when you are with him. The ball is in your court. God has done the work. He's made the way available for you and I to have a relationship with him. And not just to be in a relationship, but to maintain and walk in fellowship with God closely in this journey. But God always invites us to play a part. God knew that we, that our problem because of sin was insurmountable. We could never be in a relationship with the Holy God because of our sinfulness. And therefore, He took care of it by sending Jesus to die in our place as our substitute, took our sin, and He paid for it. And He offers us eternal life, relationship with Him, forgiveness of all that sin. But He says, you need to take it by faith. You need to trust Christ that. And when we do that, the blood of Christ is applied to our sin in our life, and we are in now in a relationship with God. And in that sense, we are with Him, and He is with us. But it doesn't stop there. As believers, we are to be continually with the Lord. We are continually to be growing in our relationship with God. And as we seek him, he will let us find him. But if we decide, well, I don't, you know, even as a believer, I don't really need to walk closely with God. I don't need to know what God's word says about, about how to live or, or who I am in him and, and how he would have me to walk in obedience. I don't need to know all that stuff. I'll just live my life. I mean, I got my fire insurance. I, I put my trust in Jesus, and so I'm just going to kind of live out my days the way I want to. God's going to be standoffish to us. That doesn't mean we can never come back. God is always calling us back. But God, if we're going to be distant from God, God's going to take a step back. I think that's what the prophet is saying to Asa there. So the reality is the ball is in our court. God always is looking for us to be in relationship with him. He desires that relationship. But make no mistake about it, he doesn't need it. He's not like the, some people who, who are relationally unhealthy and they just, they need you to be in their life and they, they hold on to you and it becomes very oppressive because you can't get away and you feel like, I need my space and they won't give it to you. Why? Because they need you to be with them all the time. They need you to affirm them. They need you to need them. They, they always are needing, needing. That's not God. He doesn't need us. 
Oh, but he desires to walk closely with us. Boy, you and I need to want that. We, we need to be the ones who are actively pursuing that. He's already done the work to make it available. So the question is, are you with the Lord? First of all, relationship with him through Christ. And secondly, are you developing relationship by spending time in his word and in prayer and cultivating that walk with him? Third lesson. No problem is too small for the Lord. Sometimes we're, we do better with the big problems. <laughs> with the small ones, like Asa, we say, well, I got this one. I can figure this one out. Now, we, we think, and, and I, it's a shame on the church because I think we have taught this for many, many, maybe even generations, that spiritual maturity means that I get to the place where I know enough of the Bible to make good decisions, and therefore I don't need to pray about some things. I don't need to look to the Bible anymore because I already know, and I just, I'm just, I've got this. And spiritual maturity is that I don't need God as much as I used to. That's not spiritual maturity in the Bible. Spiritual maturity is the more I grow, the more I realize I desperately need God so much more than I thought I ever did. Yes, I know the Bible more. Yes, I have gained some wisdom, and I've, I've through experience and through the knowledge of the Scriptures, but I cannot do this Christian life in my own strength. No matter how much knowledge I have, no matter how many degrees I have behind my name, I can't do this without the work of the Holy Spirit in me. And by the way, Jesus lived his human life as a perfect human being under the control of the Holy Spirit. And if there was anybody that didn't need that, it was him. We need to realize that there's no problem too small for the Lord. The temptation, the age-old temptation is self-sufficiency. It's all the way back to the garden when the serpent said to Eve, you know, if you eat that fruit, You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, you don't need God anymore. You'll be like him. Self-sufficiency. It's a temptation we all face. Maybe Asa thought the problem was not big enough to bother God with. Maybe God will be really happy with me because I figured this one out myself. Instead, what he saw was Asa taking all the money that was dedicated to the worship and service of God and using it to pay off a pagan to fight his battle for him instead of relying on the Lord. And Asa was rebuked for not relying on the Lord. So the question is, where are you operating independent of God? In what areas of your life are you saying, well, I don't, I don't need God in this. I don't need God's instruction. I don't need God's help. I got this one. Again, this is always tricky because we're called to make decisions and live out of faith, and, but not independent of God and God's input in our life, God's work in our lives. And then the last lesson the second prophet 
The Lord is seeking those whose heart is completely His. The Lord is actively moving throughout this world seeking people who have a heart that belongs to Him. A couple of verses from Proverbs. Proverbs 5, verse 21 says, the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. Proverbs, 16, Proverbs 15, verse 3 says, the eyes of the Lord move uh, throughout the earth, watching the evil and the good. And then this one, the eyes of the Lord move to and fro, to and fro, <laughs> throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely His. God is actively seeking people who have a heart for Him so that He can work in their lives and bless the things they do for His honor and glory and cause it to succeed and prosper in His way. God, that's what the God's, God's Word says. The question is, do you and I believe that? If we believed it, really believed it, we would live in light of that. The question really becomes, do I believe that that is really true? That God is looking for people whose heart is His. We tend to think that God is always looking for someone who's ready, who's going to screw up so He can zap them. Right? That's what we think. Yeah, God sees everything, and God's just waiting for me to screw up so He can say, yes, bam, I'm going to get you. That's oftentimes our view of God. That's not the God of Scripture. He will deal with sin. But God is looking for people who will, whose heart belongs to Him, like David's did. David wasn't perfect. David screwed up royally. And there were consequences. But God established a covenant with David because he had a heart after God's own heart. And He blessed him. God is looking for people who say, I want to be God's man. I want to be God's woman. I want to be, I want to be under God's control. I want him to guide my life. And so the question is, has, have you given your heart to him? Have you given your heart? But if you've never, if you're not in a relationship with him, of course, I, I mean, have you given yourself over to him to, to be saved? For believers, have you given him your heart? Have you said, God, I belong to you. You sent Jesus to die for me. I want to live for you. Here's my heart. And the heart not being just this emotional thing, but the heart being the core of who I am. My mind, emotion, and will. My desires, I lay them at your feet, Lord. I belong to you. I want what you want for my life. God's actively looking for people who want that. And he's not going to miss it. And he's going to bless as he guides our life. Please understand, blessing doesn't mean no problems. Sometimes it means more. Because the enemy 
is real too. And he's looking for people who, who want to follow Christ and he's trying to discourage them, trying to distract them, trying to, to trip them up. So when you give your heart to the Lord, maybe there's a target on your back. But remember, God is the one who fights the battle. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for the story, the life of Asa. We're reminded that just because a person starts well doesn't mean they end well. When we learn these lessons, God, you know what's going on in each of our life right now. You know the big problems that we're facing. You know the little problems we're facing. You know our tendency to be fearful and be paralyzed by the big things. You know our tendency to become self-sufficient and try and solve it on our own when it's a little problem. God, help us to trust you. You tell us that you're, you're with us when we're with you. God, help us to seek after you. You tell us you're looking for people whose heart belongs to you, who want to just lay their heart at your feet. God, would you find us there? Would you work in our midst? We know that it doesn't mean an easy life, but it means a fulfilled and joy-filled life. It means a life that honors you. I pray for the person who is right now, whether online or here, who's in their heart battling. Because a part of them wants to just say, Lord, I want to give everything to you. But there's a part that they're so scared. Because they don't know what that means to give control over to you. God, would you help them understand they're not in control anyway. You're in control. You want what's best for their life. You want them to live a life that is how you created and designed them to be. The most fulfilling life is a life that is lived according to God's design. So God, we ask that you would do this work in our lives. Meet us where we are and help us to walk through the struggle of total surrender. For that, we want to give you the praise and the glory for hearing our prayer. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Well, would you please stand as we...